0: Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. It is good to be back. I have... Uh, If you've noticed, if you've been following the podcast for a while, you know that the Cerebral Faith podcast has been in hiatus for the past month and a half. Uh, I took a break on purpose because I had a lot to do ministry-wise, and I just thought that it would be really, it would be a lot easier on me if I took a break from podcasting to do this other stuff. Uh, Not only that, but I also had to come up with some new topics to talk about, schedule some interviews with people, uh, read their books to interview them on the podcast, and we do have some good and interesting stuff to talk about in the future. Uh, I'm going to have now Dr. Tim Stratton, I just found out a while ago, right before I started recording this, that. Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries has his Ph.D. now, so congrats, Tim! Um, you really deserve it. You have worked hard, and you do a lot of good work for the the cause of Christ with your blog posts and your podcasts. And uh, I really have benefited from your work that you and your materials that you have put out over the years. Uh, so I'm going to have him on talk about what he thinks happens to infants who die. What hap- when a when a baby dies, they haven't had a chance to believe in Christ yet. They haven't had a chance to hear the gospel. They are, you know, they're like 10 days old or maybe maybe they just popped out of the womb the the womb, not wound. What happens to them? You know, I'm going to have Stratton, Dr. Stratton on to talk about that. I'm also going to have Greg Davidson of Biologos on And I'm going to be interviewing him on his new book, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. It's a brand new book that has just come out. And I'm also going to have a two-part episode explaining why I am now an annihilationist. You know, last year on the podcast, uh, I I argued that hell does not impugn the goodness of God. And I defended the eternal torment view. I now no longer hold that view. And it's largely... In part to the book *The Fire That Consumes* by Edward Fudge, and also the podcast episodes by the folks at Rethinking Hell. And I got a whole new—I got a whole new book that defends the annihilationist perspective in three chapters. But it's going to be just like a hellacious doctrine. A hellacious doctrine is. Uh, was uh, an apologetic work defending the goodness of God against skeptics who say they have various different objections to the good they, they don't think that the doctrine of hell and God's goodness can be compatible the whole how could God be just if he tortures people for eternity is probably the biggest one but there's others like you know what what about the you know the problem of the un-evangelized what happens to those who have never heard the gospel and then they they die and what does God do with them? Does He send them to hell? Well, how could a, a loving God do that? Uh, also, the problem of infant damnation or infant salvation. What does God do to babies who die? Uh, does God punish all sins equally? And if so, how could that possibly be just? Uh, there is, you know, so this new book, which is called Yahweh's Inferno, uh, it's it, it does the same thing that the previous book, A Hellacious Doctrine, did, it's not primarily about the eternal torment or annihilationism debate, but I do go into that. And I actually spend three whole chapters on that subject. It's a much longer book than A Hellacious Doctrine, which was just a measly 150 pages. So anyway, that I've I've also got a Paper series on Genesis one to eleven that's coming out soon, and uh, I've been doing a lot of research and a lot of study into that. It's I've really put up a lot of time and effort. And the first paper it's titled Genesis one, Temp- uh, Genesis one functional origins, temple inauguration, and anti pagan polemics. You can read that right now if you become a Cerebral Faith patron. Go to Patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. Patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. And you can read it right now, and you can read all of these papers long before they're released. They're they're not going to go up on the website until March. March and April is going to be when they're released. And they're kind of long. Actually, the first one's really long. So I have put them in PDF form, link them to Dropbox, and you can download them and read them at your own convenience, because who wants to read a 43-page blog post? Yes, you heard me, 43 pages. Uh, that's the first one. The one on Adam and Eve is not going to be so long, but I'm doing a whole series on Genesis 1-11, to known as the Primeval History, um, and if you become a patron, you can get early access to that and you can get a whole lot of other benefits and your patronage is very much appreciated your money goes into to buying research materials and i need a new computer the audio has gone out i i can only get it if i plug in external speakers so that would just be re- very much appreciated but enough enough of all that uh Today I want to talk about an argument for God's existence that I haven't covered on the podcast before and I don't talk about in my book, The Case for the One True God. Uh, it's not that I don't like the argument. Uh, it's that you know I didn't cover it in my book because it's so similar to the Kalam. I mean, I already had two fine-tuning arguments in The Case for the One True God i had the cosmic fine-tuning argument and the local fine-tuning argument and those two are really similar i thought it would just uh, i was already being a little bit redundant by including those two very similar yet different fine-tuning arguments in the book but so i I didn't include the contingency argument but i i i i do like the contingency argument it is an argument that was initially formulated by the mathematician Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Uh, Gottfried Leibniz, he was the co-discover, co-discoverer of calculus. Uh, and w- when that happened, initially people thought that Leibniz uh, plagiarized Isaac Newton. Because they, they discovered it at around the same time but now most historians think it would it was just a coincidence they both just happened to discover uh calculus uh, but you know a lot of people know Leibniz for the the calculus and his uh his controversy with Isaac Newton but he formulated an argument for god's existence uh it's a lot of people call it the Leibnizian cosmological argument I call it the argument from contingency, Uh, and the argument, William Lane Craig defends it in his books, On Guard and Reasonable Faith. It's a five-step syllogism, and it goes like this. One, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Two. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe exists. Four, therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Five, therefore, the explanation of the universe is God. This argument is logically valid. If the skeptic wants to dodge the conclusion, he's going to have to refute one of the premises of the argument. Now... Now i'm going to go into a defense of the premises of this argument to see whether they or not they're true, and I hope that you will agree with me that they are true let's look at premise one premise one is everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. It seems to me that uh, the the in the brackets in the uh in the the brackets of the of the premise, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause, tells you that there there are two types of explanations for why something exists. Either something exists because it was caused to exist by something outside of itself and existed prior to itself. X caused Y to come into being. X brought Y into being, or X exists, uh, this thing exists out of a necessity of its own nature. And by that I mean its non existence is impossible, it logically cannot not exist, and its existence depends on nothing outside of itself to bring it or keep it in existence. So, two, two types of explanation something was either caused to exist by something else, or it exists by a necessity of its own nature. Now, is this premise true, or is it false? It seems to me that it's pretty self-evident. We all intuitively know that whatever exists, it exists because it has an explanation for why it exists. William Lane Craig, in On Guard and Reasonable Faith, he has a very good illustration to help uh, see the self-evident nature of this premise. He says to imagine you were walking in the forest with a friend and you found a translucent ball lying on the forest floor. You would naturally wonder how the ball came to be there. If your friend said to you, ah, don't worry about it. The ball just exists inexplicably. You would think that he was either crazy or that he was just joking around, but you would never take seriously the notion that the ball just existed there with literally no explanation for why it existed or how it came to be there. Whatever it is we think about, whether it be cars, trucks, chairs, tables, people, houses, trees, balloons, mountains, planets, galaxies, diapers, (laughs) etc., we know they must have an explanation for why they exist. Nothing exists for no reason. Even little children know this. Why else would they ask mom and dad, where do babies come from? They know that babies have an explanation for their existence. They don't just inexplicably. They didn't just pop up in a cornfield one day and mom and dad found them. Children know babies gotta come from somewhere, and then you have to have the very uncomfortable talk with them. Um... (laughs) why does the universe exist you know this is a question that i i i remember very very clearly when i was lying in bed at night when i was about six years old and i asked that question i thought why does the universe exist now i, I thought okay everything must have been made by god If but then i thought wait a minute what if god didn't exist then nothing else would exist either and since everything exists god must exist but if god didn't exist nothing else would exist either i thought whoa then there would just be nothing and it was only 15 years later that i discovered that my little childlike insight was developed into a sophisticated philosophical argument for the existence of god the the universe has to have an explanation for why it exists everything has to have an explanation for why it exists where do babies come from Children don't just pop up in a cornfield. Uh, they don't just pop into being out of nothing. If you if you found a translucent ball lying on the forest floor, you would say, Why does this exist? Does it exist by a necessity of its own nature? Is it a necessary being? Is it a necessary object? Did someone drop it? Was it placed here on purpose for me to find? Is, is this a, nat, is this translucent ball a naturally occurring phenomenon? You know, what, why? Why? Why did, Why is the ball lying on the forest floor? It is not a brute fact. Philosophers who call something that have no explanation, brute facts. And this, this premise one of the contingency argument is essentially says, it can be stated another way. There is no such thing as a brute fact. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence and that is, explanation can either be found in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause and the i always include the brackets when i defend this argument because it if you just say everything that that exists has an explanation of its existence then the argument is going to be very vulnerable to this objection from the atheist, and that is, well, if everything has an explanation of his existence, then what is God's explanation? If, if if everything has to have an explanation, then God must have an explanation for his existence. If God exists, then the premise applies to him as well. But, that would demean God. Because that would mean that something existed outside of God, which brought him into existence. In other words, God would have a creator, and we would have a heavenly grandfather. Now, if we make God an exception to premise one, if we say, okay, well, everything that exists has an explanation, except for God. We're going to make him the exception. Uh, Then, the skeptic would say, well, you're special pleading. And guess what? He would be right. And, moreover, he could ask, you know, if we're allowed to make God an exception to premise one, why not exempt the universe? Why not say the universe exists without an explanation? So, but the objection does not succeed because of how this premise is worded. Everything that ha- exists has an explanation for its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. We would agree that God would be diminished if he had an external cause for his existence. I I would argue, yes, God does have an explanation for, for why he exists. The explanation is not in an external cause. The explanation is that he exists by a necessity of his own nature. God is a necessary being. This is what theologians call divine aseity. He is self-existent, self-contained. He ex- he just exists, necessarily, and he cannot not exist. That's one of God's attributes. So, two categories, necessary existence or caused by something else. And God does not fall into that latter category of, of explanations. Now, let's look at premise two. Is premise two true? Uh the premise 2 says if the universe has an explanation of its existence that explanation is God. Now at first this premise might seem like a huge leap in logic but it actually makes sense when you think about it. That okay, the universe has an explanation for its ex, uh, premise 3 is that the universe exists. Now and and then prim, and then step 4 of the argument is Therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Uh, and this, the, 4, the universe has an explanation of its existence, follows logically from premises 1 and 3. 2 is, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Now, there's got to be, given that the universe has an explanation of its existence, 1, uh, one and 3 lead to 4. Then the universe either exists by a necessity of its own nature, or the universe exists because it has an external cause. Well, could the universe exist by a necessity of its own nature? Let's, let's, let's think about that alternative. Maybe the universe just exists by a necessity of its own nature. Maybe it doesn't have an external cause at all, whether that be God or whatever. But this could be one way that the atheist could escape the conclusion of the argument. The problem is that and and most most critics of the contingency argument don't want to take this route for some pretty clear reasons. As we think about this big old world we live in, none of the things that it consists of seem to exist necessarily. It seems like they could have failed to exist. But, perhaps you might say, the matter that these things are made of exists necessarily. Perhaps, even though the galaxies, stars, planets, people, etc., and everything in the universe, and everything that makes up the universe uh, doesn't exist necessarily, the material stuff that makes up the planets and stars and people and and so on these exist necessarily the 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 atoms and molecules that this proposal doesn't work and because you see according to physicists matter consists of teensy-weensy particles known as quarks everything in our world is just a different arrangement of these quarks but it seems to me that one could ask why a different collection of quarks could not have existed instead of this collection of quarks. Are we expected to believe that every single quark in existence cannot possibly fail to exist? Does the skeptic want us to buy into the notion that all of the quarks in the universe have to exist? Now, you might say, well, okay, well, maybe the quarks aren't necessarily existent, but maybe the particles of which the quarks are composed exist necessarily. This suggestion won't work because quarks aren't composed of anything. They just are the basic units of matter. So if a quark doesn't exist, the matter doesn't exist. It seems obvious to me that the existence of a different collection of quarks comprising everything in the cosmos was possible, but in that case it follows that a different universe could have existed, and if a different universe could have existed, then it follows that our universe doesn't exist necessarily. To see the point, think of your house. Could your house have been made of candy? Now I'm not asking if you could have had a different house instead of the one you live in and this house is made of candy. No, I'm asking if that house that you you live in the your very house if that house could have been made of candy. The answer is no. If that were the case it would not it would be a different house. William Lane Craig uses the uh uses the illustration, you know, he says think about your shoes could your shoes have been made of ice the the question is not could you could you have a different pair of boots that are made of ice that you could that you could be wearing instead of the the shoe instead of the boots you have on now the no the question is are your boots the ones that are on your feet right now could they be made of ice and still be the same pair of boots no, if they were, they would be different boots. In the same way, if the universe were composed of different quarks arranged uh, identically to the ones that ours is, a different set of quarks, but arranged in such a way as to make our universe look Identical to the one we have now, it would be a different universe. Let me say that again. A cosmos comprised of different quarks would be a different universe, even if the said quarks were arranged in such a way as to resemble our universe identically. It still wouldn't be the same universe because the quarks comprising it would be different quarks. Now, aside from all this, Perhaps the most devastating evidence showing that the universe doesn't exist by a necessity of its own nature is the evidence from the Big Bang theory that we covered way back a year ago, when in our episodes on the Kalam cosmological argument in 1915, Edwin Albert Einstein uh, comprised his theory of general relativity. His theory predicted that the universe would be in a constant state of either expansion or contraction. Einstein didn't like the implications of his theory, so he added a fudge factor to his equations to avoid those implications. He, he wanted the universe to remain static and not be either expanding or contracting. Well, later in the 1920s... um. Alexander Friedman and George LaMatra independently formulated mathematical models that both predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble was looking through his telescope, and he noticed that the light coming from the distant galaxies were much redder than they should be. Now, what do, what do I mean when I say that the light from the distant galaxies appeared redder than they should have been? When light, or other electromagnetic radiation, uh, coming from a light source, is stretched to the red side of the light spectrum. If you've ever seen a prism, if you've ever seen light pass through a prism, you know, you notice that it has a rainbow of colors. Well... The, um, the gal- the galactic redshifts are an example of the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect is a change in frequency or wavelength of either light or sound caused by the motion of the source itself to the observer of the source. Hubble noticed that this same sort of stretching coming from the light from the distant galaxies, uh, uh, he he realized that because the light is being stretched, the galaxies are have got to be moving away from us. And he concluded that the reason they're moving away from us is because the universe is expanding. This observational evidence confirmed the theoretical predictions of Einstein, Friedman, and LaMatra. Now, th- the fact that the universe is expanding implies that the universe had an absolute beginning. Now I'm repeating all of this stuff just for those listeners who may not have heard the episodes on the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh if you've already heard that you you know what I'm talking about, but not every I'm going to assume that not everyone who's tuning in has been following since the beginning. Uh now, you know, you may be wondering why doesn't expanding universe entail that the universe began to exist because if the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets older and older and older that it must have been smaller and smaller and smaller when it was younger and younger and younger lee strobel gives a very good illustration in the illustra media film the case for a creator based on his book of the same name he says to imagine a film projector that is playing the expansion of the universe. As the film runs forward, you'll see the universe uh get bigger and bigger and bigger and you'll see all of the matter grow farther and farther apart as time moves on. But what would happen if you pressed the pause button and then you pressed the rewind button? Well, then you would see all of matter and energy in the universe, all the stuff of the universe get closer and closer together and the and space would get smaller and smaller and smaller and if you just kept rewinding the button if you just kept rewinding the film eventually the universe would shrink down to the size of a speck of dust and if you keep rewinding it it would shrink down to nothing scientists concluded that the 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 expansion of the universe entails the universe began to exist based on backward extrapolation of based on backward extrapolation the universe is expanding so let's just rewind the clock and oh it was smaller and smaller and smaller in the past and if you just keep going far far enough back in time it'll shrink down to nothing the universe began to exist in a violent explosion like expansion This explosion-like expansion was dubbed by Fred Hoyle the Big Bang. Besides the theoretical predictions of Albert Einstein, uh, Alexander Friedman, and George LaMatra that the universe is expanding, and the observational evidence of the expansion from Edwin Hubble, there are other evidences for the Big Bang, such as the abundance of light elements in the universe. Um, We also have uh, evidence that the universe began to exist because the universe is running out of usable energy over time. If the universe had existed from eternity past, it would have run out of energy by now. We we would be... the universe would have experienced what scientists call the heat death. Given that we still have usable energy left, that means the universe hasn't always been here. It began to exist. And since it began to exist, it doesn't exist necessarily. For something to exist necessarily means... It it logically entails that the necessary thing in question... Always existed from eternity past and will continue to exist in eternity future. By definition, its non-existence is impossible, so it never... It never not existed, and it will never stop existing. So the the fact that we have a plethora of evidence for the Big Bang, that the universe began to exist, we uh, that 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 means that the universe is not a necessary thing. But that means the only other explanation is that the universe exists by an external cause. Remember, there's two types of explanations. Either something exists by necessity of its own nature. Well, that couldn't be the case because science proves the universe began to exist. So the universe must have an external cause. Well, what type of cause could the universe have? Whatever caused the universe to come into being must be a spaceless, immaterial, uncaused, powerful, personal being. Well, why is that? Because it's got to be spaceless. Because it brought space into existence, if the cause is responsible for space's existence, it cannot be inside of space you you can't you can't be uh the explanation of your ha- you cannot be a part of something. If you brought that something into being, the builder of the house cannot be inside the house, at at least prior to building it. He's got to transcend the house. Likewise, the cause of space has to transcend space. It's got to be spaceless. There was no space prior to the cause uh, bringing it into being at the Big Bang. It's got to be immaterial. This is because it's spaceless. Material objects have mass they they have they could they exist in three dimensions height weight uh, height length and width they're composed of atoms and molecules that's why they're material they need space to exist well since we've already reason, we've already I've already given positive arguments for why the cause has to be spaceless it can't be material because it's spaceless There's no space until the cause brought it into being. So therefore it's got to be immaterial. It's got to be powerful because whatever is able to create and or sustain the entire physical universe, whatever is the external cause of the entire 93 billion light year wide universe, has to be extremely powerful. It has to be uncaused given... Uh, That The cause of the universe is a necessarily existent being. Necessary existence presupposes eternal existence. Uh, There are also other reasons. The fact that it's a timeless cause, because time began to exist at the Big Bang, and you can't have a before and after without time there's also a problem with an infinite regress and i've already gone over some of this stuff in the episode on the kalam on the kalam cosmological argument the cause must be personal because it's an this is an entailment of its immateriality philosophers realize two types of things that can be immaterial either abstract objects like numbers or unembodied minds However, abstract objects cannot produce any effects. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number 7, for example, can't cause anything. Given that an <coughs> excuse me, given that an abstract object cannot be the cause of the universe, it's got to be an unembodied mind, something like a spirit or a soul. So a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, supernatural, powerful, necessarily existent mind is the cause of the universe. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like God to me. Now, we don't have to call this ca- we don't have to call this cause God if that makes the atheist feel uncomfortable. We could just call it this the non-spatial, immaterial, unimaginably powerful, necessarily existent mind behind the universe but to avoid getting out of breath i prefer to label the explanation god so this is why premise 2 is is true if the universe has an explanation of its existence that explanation is god or if you prefer the non a non material a non non-materi- material non-spatial unimaginably powerful necessarily existent mind <laughs> um at this point i would like to say that even if the universe were beginningless it would still be the case that it needs a cause for its existence leibniz's argument doesn't depend on proving the universe has a beginning i gave some uh, i gave some arguments for why the universe cannot be a necessary a, a necessarily existent thing that didn't presuppose that the universe had a beginning but given that we have good reasons to believe the universe did begin to exist that just makes that just makes the the point all the more forceful. But hey, if you want to deposit, the universe is eternal. Hey, look, all that all that the all that Godfrey Leibniz's argument requires is that the universe be a a contingent thing, that it be a a non necessary entity. That's all that Leibniz's argument requires. All it requires is that the universe. Not exist by a necessity of its own nature; that it not be um, necessarily existent; that it could, it it could not exist. That's all that Godfrey. That, that's all that Godfrey Wilhelm Leibniz's argument requires. Uh, and I I can make that point, and I have made that point. I gave two reasons. They that, that can be for why the universe is not a necessary being. That like, basically. A, you know, we could have a different set of quarks or strings if string theory is ever uh, proven, but that doesn't seem likely. And a lot of scientists are abandoning the idea of, of string theory now. But uh, whatever whatever the fundamental uh, p- particles of the universe are made of, you know, we could have a different set of quarks, and therefore we'd have a different universe. Not every single quark, not every single thing that makes up the universe ...is necessary, and it's not necessary that they be arranged this way. And therefore, our universe didn't have to exist. That's That was one argument. But then the other argument is, hey, we got really powerful evidence that the universe began to exist. So, two arguments. Uh, one of them does not depend on the universe have having a beginning. So that's premise two. So... Premise three of the argument is pretty undeniable. Premise three is that the universe exists. Uh, and the truth of this premise is just so overwhelmingly obvious that even someone... It's obvious to anyone with even a small shred of sanity. Uh, no defense of this argument even needs to be given. Now, I'm I'm going to say, okay, let's say that someone wanted to resort to some crazy idea like solipsis solopsism or solipsism—I have no idea how the heck you say it. Uh, this is the view that you are the only thing that exists, and that the entire universe and everything that you experience is just projections of your own mind. Let's say, let's say someone wanted to posit that idea. Well, that wouldn't get you out of the conclusion of the argument. In this case, we would just say that you are the universe. So, premise one, uh, one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Two, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe exists. Four, therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Five, therefore, the explanation of the universe's existence is God. Given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. Really, the only debatable premises in this argument are Premises 1 and premises uh, Premise 1 and Premise 2. Uh, four, 4 and 5 are actually just conclusions. 4 the the universe has an explanation of existence logically follows from 1 and 3 and 5 therefore the explanation of the universe is god logically follows from 2 and 4 so the only, and like i said no one in his right mind would deny that the universe exists so premise 3 is not even up for grabs it's really it really all boils down to are you going to argue that things can exist without an explanation of its existence, which means that you could just say, well, the universe just is, like, uh, who was it that said the universe just was and is and and all that there's there's ever going to be. I think it was Carl Sagan. I I can't remember. Uh if you want to say that, then you would deny premise 1. But then you've you've got you've got to actually give a good argument for that. You can't just assert Oh, well, the universe just exists for no explanation because I'm going to be skeptical of that, and you're not going to convince me that, that the contingency argument is invalid just by making that assertion. Anybody can claim anything, and this is something that uh, internet atheists, the, the, the atheists that spew stuff on Reddit and social and Facebook and Twitter, they, they don't seem to get. They, they seem to think that they can just make all kinds of assertion, and, and it's up to you, the theist. To disprove them. They don't have to prove anything. They can just make any sort of claim and it's up to you to prove them wrong. Well, newsflash. If you say that things can exist without any explanation, if you say that things can pop into being without a cause, if you say that the universe is finely tuned because there's a multiverse, if you say that Flavius Josephus got his all of his information from christians and he was very un, uh, he was very gullible when he w- was writing his uh his account about jesus as christ mythists also uh often say if you make these sorts of claims you've got to back them up that's how debate works yes i have to i have to make a case for the truth of the premises because i'm making a positive case for the existence of god I've got to give good reasons to think that the premises are true, but if you say no, that premise is wrong, it's false, and it's false because in the case of premise one, uh, things can exist without an explanation of his, of their existence, then you've got – you've got to to back up that claim. Otherwise, it's not a true rebuttal. It's not a rebuttal. You're just – you're basically just going, uh uh and that's not that's not how philosophers argue. That's not how intelligent adults argue. That's how that's how kindergartners argue. And if you want to argue on a level above a kindergartner, you're going to have to give good reasons for why you are saying, even in, 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 despite the arguments that you gave to support your claim that this premise is true. I I, don't, I still disagree. You're going to have to back that up. And too many atheists, and sadly, I have to say, even some Christians, uh, they they seem to think that they can just make assertions, and they can ju- they just sit back and wait for you to to prove them wrong. And that's just not how it works. Uh, <clears throat> I would also like to make a comment on premise two. You know, the the multiverse, it's often used as an argument against the Kalam argument because, oh, well, maybe the Big Bang uh, wasn't the beginning of all physical reality. Maybe it was just the beginning of our universe, and our universe is just one bubble uh, among many, many bubbles being spawned in a mother universe. Now, I've given arguments in the uh, part two of my two-part episode on the Kalam cosmological argument, and I have also have... S- some stuff on this on the blog and in my book the case for the one true god for why that really doesn't get you out of the conclusion that there's a creator but you, I don't have to give the, the I don't have to respond to the multiverse question in the con, the contingency argument in the exact same way that I do when responding to it when applied to the kalam Why? Because then I can say, well, does the multiverse exist necessarily, or is the multiverse contingent? If the multiverse is contingent, then the multiverse has got to have an explanation of its existence, an external cause. And it's got to be something that's non-spatial, immaterial, powerful, uncaused. Well, if you want to say no, the the external cause of the mother universe is a grandmother universe. Well, is the grandmother universe necessary? Did it have to exist? Did all of the universe, the bubble universes in it, have to exist? If it's not a necessary being, then it had to have an ex an uh, uh an external cause. Well, then you could say, well, maybe it's a great grandmother universe. you you get pushed into an infinite regress. Eventually, you've got to come to an uncaused, beginningless, necessarily existent, non-spatial, immaterial mind. So, I really don't see how you can get out of premise two unless unless you posit a mother universe and you prove that the mother universe is a necessarily existent being. Or you prove that you really can traverse an actual infinite that oh, you know but I, I don't see how that's possible because if <clears throat> if you if you don't get to an uncaused cause, then you're basically like, well our universe was birthed by a mother universe, and the mother universe was birthed by a grandmother universe, and the grandmother universe was birthed by a great mother grandmother universe, and the great grandmother universe was birthed by a great great grandmother universe. And so on and so forth. It, it just Seems to me that no universe, no no, in the entire genealogy of universes, would ever be able to come into being because there would always be a universe that would have to give birth to it first. You've got to come to an uncaused cause. I think the contingency argument is powerful. I think it's sound. And if there are any atheists out there listening, if you want to bring a challenge. If you think there's something I missed, email me at cerebralfaith@gmail.com. At I'll uh, I'll respond to it in a Q&A blog post. But I I think it's I think we have good. Oh yeah, this is just one argument among many that shows that God exists. So thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast. Uh, if you if you would uh, please consider becoming a patron at uh, Patreon.com/slash Cerebral Faith. Even <clears throat> even if it's only three dollars a month, um, it counts. Everything counts, and I I use all of the Patreon money for ministry stuff, for research materials, um, books and papers, and uh, if I can get enough patrons, I'm going to get a brand new computer, I want to take Cerebral Faith to YouTube. I want to start making YouTube videos like Inspiring Philosophy, like Faith Because of Reason, like Ben S. He does a lot of good ancient Near Eastern stuff. Uh, I want to move to YouTube so I can reach more people with the gospel with and the evidence that Christianity is true and, and a reasonable faith. Uh, but the computer I currently have does not have enough ram it's got like 5 gigs of memory and i need at least uh what 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 was it i was talking with someone who was good at computers he said i needed at least uh 10 gigs of memory or something anyway my computer is just not powerful enough to run video uh, editing software, like Lightworks, or Ado- or that Adobe program. So, uh, it, you listeners out there becoming patrons, it would it w- get me one step closer to getting a new computer, and moving to YouTube, and making s- some, re- uh, some more great content. Plus, Patreon is not a mere donation page. It's not that you just... It's not that you just donate money and that's it. You get some good stuff in return. If you're at least a $10 patron, you can get patron-exclusive audiobooks that I've recorded of my own books, like The Case for the One True God, My Redeemer Lives, etc., one per month until you've accumulated them all. You get early access to the podcast episodes. You get early access to blog posts um you get shout outs on the podcast, like Jordan Apodaca and Kevin Walker and David Parrish Austin Long <coughs> <coughs> so just you know consider doing that so thank you for listening to the cerebral faith podcast um i hope that you will continue to follow the podcast cuz we got some really really great episodes coming up uh i will see you Next time. Now, next time I'll be talking to someone about the topics of dinosaurs. Did dinosaurs live with man? Did they coexist? Until then, I will see you next time. God bless.